0: Hello, this is Jamar.
1: Hi, Jamar. This is Umbreen uh, with Inspired Interfaith Voices. How are you?
0: Greetings. I'm doing well, trying to stay warm now that winter has finally hit.
1: No kidding. No kidding. Jamar Tisby, welcome to the show.
0: I am so glad to be here. Thanks for having me on.
1: Of course. We're talking on January 6th, a pretty momentous day. And before we get to the subject of our conversation, a new book, in some ways, I feel like what we're going to talk about with your new publication and the anniversary of today are somewhat connected. How do you see it?
0: So they're always going to be connected in my mind because on January 5th, 2021, that's when How to Fight Racism, the adult version of my book came out the day before the insurrection. And then this year on January 4th, 2022 is when the Young Readers version of How to Fight Racism came out. So just two days before the anniversary. So mentally, emotionally for me, they're connected, but also because this conversation about racism, which really hit a peak in 2020 and those racial justice uprisings are still so relevant and still so very, very connected to the events of January 6th, 2021.
1: You know, when you talk about the connection between how to fight racism and the events of what unfolded around this insurrection, mistrust of an electoral system, mistrust of leaders, but also a reaction to the racial reckoning that was happening in the country in part led by movements like Black Lives Matter. And here in Washington, D.C., moments before the crowds went down to the Capitol. Religion reporter Jack Jenkins and I had jumped on the call and he shared with me in great detail how Trump supporters
0: supporters started walking down on either side of this gathering. Then one of them walked into the middle of the gathering in front of the Black Lives Matter sign out in front of this church, then pretended to fall down, and one of his companions walked over and put his knee on his neck in a an attempt to mock and to mimic the killing of George Floyd by police.
1: What he had said over and over is that there were so many different threads of what motivated people who were on the Capitol grounds, who participated. And it's also impacted how they have come to rationalize, talk about, reject the events that unfolded um, on this day. As someone who has dedicated now many years to raising the conversation about racism and about the role of Christianity specifically, what were some of the key lessons that you have learned
0: I'm so glad you bring up the racial backlash because I'm concerned that in the public consciousness, at least among some, perhaps many, there has been an unlinking of race and democracy. You say democracy, you say even insurrection. And for some people that can be race neutral, like this is about voting, this is about forms of government, but that has always been connected to who gets to vote, who is considered a citizen, whose voice counts. And the events of January 6th were directly connected to the prominence of black and brown and other historically marginalized people claiming their own dignity and rising up for an end to police brutality, and also for an inclusive multiracial democracy. Let's not forget the Senate elections in Georgia that happened just a couple months prior, where two Democratic senators, including a black senator who uh, holds the historic pulpit of Ebenezer Baptist Church, where Martin Luther King Jr. served, were elected to the U.S. Senate. And, And that is Part and parcel of the supposed threat that the insurrectionists felt, the feelings that were stoked by political leaders in the highest offices that, hey, quote unquote, your country, this white person's country, is under threat by all of these folks who don't look like you, don't talk like you, don't have the same concerns or perspectives as you. And so we have to remember that it's not simply democracy that's under threat. It is the idea of a multiracial, inclusive democracy that is particularly under assault right now.
1: You talked about the face of the country, the who we are. That definition is changing into one that is multiracial, not default one identity one ethnic group one racial ethnic story one racial ethnic history and let's put religion in there it is also not just one religion or even one interpretation of one religion in speaking of any of the traditions whether we're talking about dominant traditions like christianity or or traditions like islam and judaism and hinduism do you see that under threat as well what do you see when you think about who we are and how we contribute to the country
0: I think, in a way, what we're seeing now is the success of the dream that was broadcast globally that you can come to the United States from anywhere, from any background and be what you want to be. Now, I say the broadcasting of the dream because it hasn't been a reality for so many people, but it's attractive. And what has happened in terms of the attraction is we have the nations at our doorstep. And so we live in the most diverse, pluralistic society one could imagine. You can walk down the street in certain places from neighborhood to neighborhood, hear multiple languages, get all different kinds of food, all different kinds of cultures, and that's right here. And if you think about it, 50, 60 years ago, not that long ago, the entire nation was predominantly white, except for pockets. You know, 70% or more of the entire nation would be considered white. And so this demographic shift has happened rapidly. Already among the youngest generations of kids, white people are no longer the majority. So all of that to say, this idea of multiple intersecting identities is certainly true. And from a sort of faith-based perspective, I think what we need in the 21st century is a robust re-examination and excavation of something called the doctrine of the image of God, all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, God talking about making humankind in God's image, which bestows upon each person, and I would argue people group, inherent dignity and infinite worth. We have to have a robust theological anthropology in order to understand how to interact with one another in a respectful, dignified, honoring way across all of these different lines of differences and identity.
1: Let me dig a little into this, this idea that we need the excavation of a new theology to frame who we are. And you're reminding me of conversations I have around my dinner table. I have a 21-year-old, soon to be 22-year-old, and a 15-year-old. We talk a lot about the world and we have different points of view and disagreements and something that we talk often about is okay deconstructing the mythology of what we have learned about our history and our country that that reinforced power of one group. The counter argument that comes up at the table is but okay, yes, we need to deconstruct mythology that's based on lies and misinformation and an erasing of stories, particularly of communities and people who were exploited or marginalized. But then the other point of view that'll come up will be like, wait a minute. I want American identity. We need a national identity that everyone can rally around. And it needs to be hopeful and positive and idealistic and something that gives us a way of identifying as part of the same tribe.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And then the conversation turns. Who gets to choose the metaphors and the symbols? And how do you reconcile the painful history with the hopeful future? So when you talk about coming up with excavating a theology that looks back at this Genesis-based doctrine, Shamar, that's very Christian of you. That's a you're talking about <laughs> Genesis, and some of us, FYI, are not, and we don't we don't necessarily identify with that. And by the way, if you're talking to young people and you look at the latest data from public religion research folks, and I know you do. Yep. affiliation and identity among Gen Z and millennials and even Gen Xers, far lower than mm-hmm. older mm-hmm. generations.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So
1: why not have it secular? Why does it need to be rooted? What do you say to that?
0: So first, I would say there has been a disaffiliation from organized institutional religions we've made much of the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, people who claim no particular religious affiliation. That is distinct from atheism and agnosticism. For statistical purposes, they generally lump it in. But the vast majority of folks, especially as I look at data on uh, black people who, who, you know, the same trend is true, not as many people being sort of born and raised in the church are still spiritual, still recognize a higher power, still want some transcendent moral framework. And there are still people who who are hungry for that and yearning for that. And what we're trying to do is communicate to this generation ways that, hey, this stuff is still important, relevant, and applicable. And it doesn't have to be all of the negative stuff that makes the headlines, right? And actually, the excavation I'm calling for is part and parcel of this trend of disaffiliation from organized institutional religion. It's saying, how can we take a timeless truth like the image of God, but apply it to a modern day context? Because what we're dealing with, even in the past five to seven years, is so dramatically different from what came before. Now, there's continuity for sure, but just Think about the changes that have happened since August 2014, when Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson, Missouri, and the the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, since the 2016 elections, since the pandemic, since the January 6th insurrection, right? Like, (laughs) we've got a lot of work to do to say, here's how what I believe is eternal applies to that which is contemporary in our day. And that actually does give us a sort of coherent narrative that has all kinds of different tributaries. It's supposed to be diverse, that's part of the story, but it also gives us all something to gravitate toward and to discuss and a common starting point.
1: As you describe those events using that limited timeline, 2014 to today, mm-hmm. and thinking about excavating a new way of thinking about who we are as a people and where we're going. Who needs to be a part of that conversation? You live at the intersection of public religion and communicating justice and racial justice ideas. You were also rooted in (laughs) communities of faith that are more conservative, that are predominantly white. It's one of the reasons I love talking to you because you have your hands and your feet rooted in places that are by definition not silos. Mm. Jamar, is it just folks like... Yourself, who have a very specific point of view and way of looking at the world, who needs to be a part of that conversation?
0: So you raise an important point. My perspective is as someone who lives in the Mississippi Delta on the Arkansas side in one of the five poorest counties in the entire nation. It is predominantly black, which has a history that goes all the way back to race-based chattel slavery where you needed more laborers to pick the cotton than owners to collect the money. I have gone to as theologically conservative a seminary as you can get in the heart of the Deep South in Jackson, Mississippi. I got my PhD from the University of Mississippi. The history department there is a blue spot among the red in terms of political and social ideology. And I am still involved deeply in important ways with uh, white evangelicals who are all wrapped up in this January 6th thing and Christian nationalism. So that melding of communities is important. And what that leads me to believe is that the voices who should be included, we begin with the coalition of the willing. So I am not in at the beginning of 2022, nearly as concerned about persuading the people who to this day remain recalcitrant on issues of race and justice, because I don't think they're going to change anytime soon. And I don't say that in a pessimistic way, as a throw up my hands kind of way, or these people don't matter kind of way. I mean, take folks at their word. And I mean that we are living in times of such moral clarity, that if people have doubled down on their positions right now about politics, about economics, about immigration, about incarceration, about any number of issues, they really mean it. <laughs> uh, you you can't sit there and look at, at thousands of people storming the Capitol and, and then sit down with somebody who still thinks that the 2020 election was stolen through fraud and hope to come to any real movement in a short amount of time. So so rather than focusing all of our energy right there, a coalition of the willing, of the people who say, I know there's a problem and I want to be part of the solution. Mm. That's the group we start with.
1: Coming up after the break, we continue my conversation with Dr. Jamar Tisby, author, historian, and activist, whose book, how to Fight Racism, a Younger Reader's Edition, hit bookshelves on January 4th, 2022. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. Welcome back to Inspired from Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. If you're just joining, this week, my conversation with Dr. Jamar Tisby. He's a historian, activist, and author working to change the conversation about race in the church. In 2019, his first book, The Color of Compromise, became a bestseller, introducing many to a history they never learned. How the early American churches of the colonies shaped the discourse on race and slavery in the face of opposition. He received his master's in divinity from the Reformed Theological Seminary and earned his PhD in history from the University of Mississippi. When I first spoke with him in 2019, he shared how the time he spent in pulpits and in the pews of predominantly white conservative congregations not only informed his writing, but shaped his framework for approaching racial justice. On January 5, 2021, the day before Trump supporters stormed the United States Capitol, Tisby released his second book, How to Fight Racism. As we get back to my conversation... Tisby explains how the political backlash to teaching about race in our public schools inspired his latest title, How to Fight Racism, a Guide for Young Readers. What made you decide as someone who has focused primarily in speaking to adults to focus your energy on providing a resource for parents?
0: When I first started adapting the book, it was beginning of 21, and so the CRT stuff was still unfolding, but I had seen rumblings of this in Christian nationalist circles years before. I knew there was an opposition to a particular kind of education and teaching. I think it reached a fever pitch in 2020 when there was all this focus on anti-racism and people reading books like, you know, White Fragility and How to Be an Anti-Racist and things like that. That's when people said, oh, no, this is like pervasive and we need to oppose it.
1: For listeners, critical race theory is an abstract legal concept that was articulated back in 1989 by law professor Kimberly Crenshaw. Today, the label critical race theory is being misapplied and hurled as an accusation at both schools and school board leaders by parents opposed to the teaching of sensitive and difficult topics in American history. Topics like slavery, segregation, and exploring the mass incarceration of black and brown Americans.
0: So it was unfolding as we were adapting it, and it helped shape, I think, the book in in certain ways. But it more so just bolstered my conviction that fighting racism has to be an intergenerational endeavor. I've encountered so many people, especially those who read my first book, The Color of Compromise, which is more historically focused. So many people who said, I never knew. They never taught me this in school, or I'm just now learning this in my 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s even. So from talking to adults, it became clear, we need to start way earlier. And the hope and the promise of a book like the Young Readers Edition is, what if our young people never had to say what we did? The I never knew the why am I just now learning this? So there's fully a quarter of the book devoted to U.S. racial history. Uh, Some of it adapted from The Color of Compromise, some of it more general about our national history. But what if we can, in appropriate ways, expose our young people to this information, to this knowledge, and what's more, give them a sense of agency to say, you don't have to accept the world as it is, you can make it a better place. If these things anger you, if they upset you as they rightfully should, then here are some things you can do about it. And so this is ideal for young people ages 8 to 12 years old, fourth grade through sixth grade range. But I'll be honest, if you can break it down in a way that a young person will understand it's going to be super helpful for older youth and adults too. So I would recommend getting the book even for oneself in addition to young people.
1: When I say the words racial justice or social justice, I get lots of different answers.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs>
1: so, so tell us, Jamar, let's start there. What, what is your arc uh, frame for understanding racial yes. justice?
0: Yeah, so I was really trying to address what I thought is a gap in our treatment of racial justice, going back to the coalition of the willing, right? Like, we're well aware there's actual racists out there, people who are opposing all kinds of justice initiatives. Uh, but what about those who, who are on board? And, and folks like me, who, who sort of speak and write about this, I, I encountered two consistent problems or issues. The first one was, we are heavy on the diagnosis and relatively light on the prescription. Um, not that there's a single answer to anything, but but we major on describing the problem, and we give relatively short shrift to what to do about it. And then the second issue I noticed was even when we do talk about ways to address the problem, it's hard to take action on, and mostly because it's not organized in a way that is helpful to us cognitively, intellectually. So it'll be a bullet point list, or it'll be a few actions in this sector and a few actions in that sector. And it's hard to just walk away and do something with that. So that's where the arc of racial justice framework comes in. Now, the adult version and the youth version, packed with actual practical action steps, but I think the real value of these books is the framework. And ARC of Racial Justice is an acronym that stands for Awareness, Relationships, Commitment. And I think you need all three components to have a stable foundation on which to build your racial justice efforts. So just a brief rundown of what that means, awareness, that's everything we do to increase our knowledge and information about race and racism and white supremacy. That's watching documentaries, that's listening to this radio show, that's going to museums, reading the books, all of those things. But we can't just have a big head about this. We've also have to have soft hearts, um, as King would say. And so the intentional building of bridges where walls have been intentionally built historically, right? There is something unavoidable about people in this racial justice work. It cannot be done well in abstraction. There have to be real names and faces and stories attached to this work because at the end of the day, why are we doing it? It's for people and for their flourishing and their protection. And then commitment doesn't just mean, you know, staying the course. It means a commitment to dismantling racist structures, the policies, the institutions and practices that make inequality such a society-wide issue. So it's not just a matter of personal attitudes, of me liking or not liking someone, of me using a racial slur and not using it. It's a matter of the way Our society is constructed in terms of laws and policies and changing those things from incarceration to healthcare to uh, education and all of those other aspects that fall so depressingly consistently along racial lines.
1: In your definition of ARC, can I be committed to the ARC of racial justice without committing to challenging systemic racism as you're describing it?
0: It would be truncated. Uh, To put it nicely.
1: So you're saying like, I have to, I can't just change my personal actions, my personal behavior. The commitment actually requires committing to the larger societal relationships that I have and using the power I have to change society.
0: Absolutely, because it's not just a matter of providing relief for one or two people. It's a matter of enacting justice. For all people, which can only be done on a macro scale. And I know that's intimidating. It's intimidating for me. It's like, what do I do? You know, how do do I? And I think it's also,
1: I wonder if it's also going to be intimidating for kids. And I just, I think about work that I used to do, again, when I was a lot younger. (laughs) I, I remember being a part of this movement of young people who were committed to building any town, this idea that um the the a multiracial multi-religious multi-faith mm. world and we used to go to this camp and then we'd commit to coming back home into our schools and keeping those bridges strong and we'd build those bridges with relationships and i remember when we'd come together in workshops to support each other over the weekends we would share and what people were often sharing was the struggle that they were having not with the leadership of their schools but their parents or yeah. relatives, or the adults yeah. that were threatened by the ideas of making changes to those systems. And so w- when you put forth how to fight racism as a, as a primer for kids and for their parents, how do you support the resistance they're going to face?
0: Such a good point. I want to make clear that when we talk about commitment and changing systems, that doesn't just mean like the federal government or even state, we are constantly, all of us, participating in creating and maintaining different systems and policies. So our churches and faith communities have policies. Our schools have policies. Even in an informal way, our families can have policies. And so the idea of commitment is how are you looking at the way that things are set up in sort of perpetuity and enacting justice through those policies, either by keeping or, or changing them. And so for young people, it's instilling the idea that, yes, how you individually treat people matters, but also how do organizations and institutions treat people? And so that can be something as simple as running for student government in middle school. The first time we ever had student government at our middle school, I ran and I was co-president with with someone else. <laughs> really? I mean, we weren't doing anything deep or radical. I didn't have this awareness back then, but it was an indelible lesson in my life that okay, I can be part of shaping things that matter to me and to other people, right? It can be instilling in our young people the idea that we do participate in all kinds of systems which can be unfair to other people based on race or ethnicity. And so let's say that young person grows up and goes to college and becomes, I don't know, an engineer or something. And they recognize, hey, in my workplace or in this field, there is a disproportionate number of whatever. And I can do something to make sure that the way we practice this profession or this trade is more equitable. we start early, my goodness, what kind of world might we be like in 10 or 20 years with young people who don't need a video of an officer kneeling on the neck of a black person to galvanize them to action? That's what I'm passionate about, is that We have folks who grow up with this idea of racial justice and then who knows what they might do on a local or a national level. That is something that we can be excited about and hopeful for if we do the work now.
1: Hmm. Talk to me about the Christian Reader that you are talking to in this book. As I was reading it, I was struck by that, that it is very much making somewhat of an assumption that the person reading it is rooted in the Christian tradition. You make lots of references to the faith, and you also, just to be clear, don't give Christianity a so-called pass. You acknowledge its history. Why was that important, for you to include that dimension of the religious symbolism, the role of religious identity, and the way in which different religious points of view emerged in the same tradition.
0: You know, for parents, for educators out there, yes, this is definitely a book that is rooted in faith, and in my case, the Christian tradition, uh, I will say from a, a user standpoint, a readability standpoint, you can be selective and there are sections that I think are still sort of broadly applicable. I'll also say that even from a faith based perspective, I tried to root it in, in fairly universal principles. There is the idea of justice and love, right? which Which span across different faiths. So it's I don't think, and you know, I could be wrong, but I don't think it's like beating people over the heads with like just Christianity or conversion or proselytizing. I, I just can't write about this in an honest way from my perspective without bringing in the faith aspect. What I would say about the Christianity part is two things. One, historically, when it comes to racism, Christians have been such a big part of the problem that they need to be part of the solution. In particular, white Christians and certain segments of the U.S. Christian Church, you you cannot avoid the implication historically uh, of Christianity as a vehicle for racism and white supremacy in this country. So Christians have to be part of the solution. The other reason I sort of talk about Christians in this is because a a faith perspective provides a, a framework for doing this work why are we doing this work ultimately it helps us to articulate that in a way that says we're doing this because each person has infinite value and worth and i get that from this faith perspective but even beyond that we can see that just as faith and and christianity in particular has been an agent of dehumanization it can also be the impetus for the dignifying and humanizing of people. And it has all the resources there to do that if we'll see them.
1: You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Ambreen Khan. Raised in Waukegan, Illinois, that's north of Chicago, historian, activist, and author Dr. Jamar Tisby traveled to the Deep South to study theology and church history. I spoke to him from his home studio in Arkansas, located in the Mississippi Delta, where he regularly tapes his podcast, past the Mic, produced by a national organization he founded, The Witness, a Black Christian Collective. Tisby described how his outreach and engagement with predominantly conservative white Christian congregations and leaders informed his ARC framework. That stands for Awareness, Relationship, and Commitment. Do you think American Christianity in particular and American Christian leaders are struggling with a branding problem when it comes to race?
0: (laughs) Certainly, if you look at the national news headlines, um, we got to remember that these are, to some extent, rooted in local communities. And I think at that level on the ground of individual congregations and whatnot, it can be a very different story. But I'm not saying that to give... Christians, a pass. We've done a terrible job. We've so stinking slow on this stuff. Um, I remember MLK fifty. It was the fiftieth anniversary yep. of the assassination of MLK in twenty eighteen. I was in Memphis, mm, yes. uh, uh, and as you know, there's the Civil Rights Museum yep, there. Yep, yep.
1: I did an internship They'd there, been... so yes, I know it well. Oh, cool. Oh, yeah.
0: very cool. Uh, um, so you know they had been planning events for years and years and years and then there was this evangelical christian group that decided almost at the last minute a couple of months before to to commemorate the event and and they held a conference in memphis and i say this to to just set up the the contrast in terms of speed and and where christians have been in leading this thing on racial justice at the evangelical conference they were arguing. They were trying to make the case for why they should care about racial justice as Christians. They were basically saying this is important. Meanwhile, at the MLK 50 events at the museum, which was on its face secular, they were talking about the how we do racial justice. They were assuming <laughs> that we should do it, and they weren't arguing about whether one should get involved. They were saying, Here's how to get involved, and here's what we should be prioritizing. And those are just completely different gears. So when it comes to the branding problem, if you want to put it that way, of Christianity, part of it is we're still arguing about whether this is part of the gospel or not. Meanwhile, other people who may not claim any faith at all are out there actually doing work to try to make the nation and the world a more equitable place. And man, goodness, what would it look like if Christians were on the cutting edge or were the headlight instead of the taillight of that, so to speak?
1: You talk about Dr. King and MLK Day is around the corner. What do you encourage people to be doing? What will you be doing?
0: So... I'm always a little ambivalent on these. We bring up MLK Day, we can also bring up Juneteenth, <laughs> which is now a national holiday. Right, right. And I think it's different for Black people and white people. You know, to me, I, I often sort of imagine can we take those days as Black people, as days of rest, as days of celebration and joy, as days of rejuvenation? Because especially with MLK Day, It's often a day of service, which I absolutely understand. But on the other hand, every day is a day of service and survival for black people, especially those of us deeply concerned about racial justice. You asked me what I. What I'll do, it's not a ton different than what I do on a daily basis, because this is, this is what I do. Um, and for so many of us, even if you don't speak or write books about it or blog posts or whatever it might be, the attempt to flourish and live uh, the life abundant in a white supremacist society is exhausting. And I, I wonder what these days of commemoration would look like if for black folks uh, and other marginalized folks, if they were days of rest and recovery and rejuvenation. Um, but for white folks, I think it's a bit different. I, th- I think these are days in part of lament, in recognizing their historic role, even if you weren't the perpetrator of these things, you, you still inherit some of the benefits, right? And, and so recognizing that role, and also saying, you know, what can I do with my agency and the privileges I do have to to prevent harm from those who are marginalized and to promote justice and so then it is a day of service, it is a day of work, so I don't know if that'll ever be mainstream or not, but i I kind of in twenty twenty two and we're still in a pandemic I'm thinking you know maybe those are days to unplug a little bit mm-hmm. um, and to pace ourselves in terms of this journey toward racial justice.
1: You know, as you describe a day of rest and the need to unplug and the exhausting feeling that one must have when you are challenging something that feels so pernicious and yet demands attention. And I think you and I talked about this the last time we spoke. It was actually around Juneteenth when President Trump headed to to Tulsa. And right. I asked you, we started that conversation, I asked you, how are you? How are you doing? And you, you were honest. You were really honest. In your book, you talk about the need for, you don't use the word self-care explicitly, but okay. I, found, I read self-care in that passage. Why do you think so many advocates and activists and people who are passionate about creating a more just world burn out? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Full disclosure: I have burned out before. I mean, I, I've yeah. I've gone through periods in my life in which, and then I discovered the importance of spiritual resiliency for me to be able to to do the kind of work right. that I felt was important and that I feel called to do. I remember the time when I felt incredibly burned out, and I was starting to lose not just hope in the work that I was doing, but also interest in so many other aspects of my life. I was starting to lose, I think, what yeah. I would call perspective. Um and I ended up really un- deeply unplugging from lots of things that kept me in that fight or flight state. And I've developed a series of personal practices and I teach yoga, for example, in my community, mm. and I practice it every day as part of my own, spiritual resiliency. I'm going to use that word again. How do you, when you look at it, you're, you're a bit younger than I am. So as you see this generation of advocates that you're working with, your peers, your colleagues, how do you see the view of self-care, of taking time to replenish the spiritual stores? How Has that gained more currency? Is that something that is seen as more important today than perhaps it was 20 years ago?
0: I think of... Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka and Serena Williams and these uh, black female athletes who are taking ownership of their mental health and saying, we're not just human doings, we're human beings, as the saying goes. And we are not reducible to our production or our output. We have mental health concerns and spiritual health concerns that need time and attention to There's also a feeling of guilt. Like if we're not on the front lines, if we're not totally exhausting ourselves and leaving it all out on the field, then we we think, well who am I to take a break? Mm-hmm. Who am I to That's take right. a vacation? Who am I to just read a book and not worry about something for a day? And that is a recipe for burnout yeah. um that we gotta we gotta we gotta be honest about and change. I take lessons from black history. The the nonprofit I founded called The Witness Incorporated. We did our first national conference back in 2018 and we called it the Joy and Justice Conference. And those two words are are critical and have been illustrated in the history of black people in the US from the start. So our battle for dignity, for racial justice, has been constant over centuries. I mean, we're still, in 2022, talking about securing voting rights for Black people and other racial and ethnic groups, right? So, so this is an old, old struggle, and it's one that's vital, it's important, it's urgent, it's all of those things. At the same time, we have found ways to be joyful. So one of my historical heroes who I talk about in How to Fight Racism is Fannie Lou Hamer. Mm-hmm. She grew up in the most dire of conditions. She was poor, she was black, and she was a woman. Born in 1917 to a sharecropping family, grew up to become a sharecropper until she was fired for the audacity of attempting to register to vote in rural Mississippi. So her life was one of hardships, had chronic illnesses, uh, never became rich or anything like that and yet she was known for her dynamic and powerful singing she would always sing this little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine oh, this little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine that was what she was known for and she would help lead marches and she had this glint in her eyes this joy, as the church folks say, that the world didn't give and the world can't take it away. Or we can think of the elderly black woman who on a march, somebody asked her, aren't you tired? She said, my feet is tired, but my soul is rested. And there's always been this dialectic among people of faith and those who seek justice more generally of doing the work, but also knowing that there's something beautiful worth living for. There's, there's, There's jazz music and gospel music and even blues music as a cathartic means of dealing with the issues of the day. I love young black creators on social media and on TikTok and creating videos and the things they can do in the span of seconds to bring laughter and joy to people is amazing. And that's the kind of stuff, that's what we're leaning toward. That's what we're going toward. That's the kind of life that if we're successful, we can get more of that. And so we cannot wait until we've quote unquote achieved or arrived at any particular place. We're made to enjoy this life and we're going to do it as much as possible, even as we know it's a broken world in need of justice.
1: Mm. Listening to you talk so hopefully about the future and finding hope in these stories is something It's echoing the pages of your book. Before we wrap up, can you just tell us the story for those who do not know it? And I will again say I did not know it until, uh, until I read your book. Who was Audrey Faye Hendricks?
0: She's such a perfect example of young people knowing more than we think they do. So she was in Birmingham, Alabama. She's seeing the struggle going on around her. This is the height of the civil rights movement. Uh, There are marches taking place in her town of Birmingham, but guess what? The adults weren't making headway. Tons of them had been arrested. They were losing literal foot soldiers to to carry on the protests and the marches. And it had been an idea in the minds of organizers, hey, we need to get young people included. And so a lot of Black adults were opposed to this because they didn't want to put kids in danger. But children have this really keen sense of right and wrong, this really sharp sense of fairness. And once high schoolers and, and even younger got a, a, a whiff of this justice movement, they wanted to be a part of it. And so the children's crusade of which Audrey Faye Hendricks was a part, they literally marched when you know, the adults were arrested and there weren't enough of them to continue the kids' continued the crusade for racial justice in Bur- Many of them arrested. This is where we get some of the, the most brutal pictures of the civil rights movement of dogs being, you know, sicked on young people, of fire hoses being used. This is part and parcel of the children's crusade. And in so many examples, you can think of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was the only large civil rights group that went into the Mississippi Delta not even the NAACP or the King's SCLC had much of a presence there. The student nonviolent coordinating commitment, teenagers are, are, are helping lead the way. And so often young people have the determination, the flexibility in their lives in terms of responsibilities and time, and also the, the all out courage to do the hard things, and they can even inspire us as adults to get involved in more robust ways in racial justice. And so I wanted to make sure to include uh, uh, events like the Children's Crusade and Audrey Faye Hendricks, because we can learn from our young people. And if we actively include them, then together, we're a force to be reckoned with. I am Dr. Jamar Tisby, author of How to Fight Racism, Young Readers Edition.
1: That's all for this week. If you missed any part of this week's show, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. While you're there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or the podfeeder of your choice. Just search Interfaith Voices. While you're there, you can help us out by leaving a rating and a review. Music by Blue Dot Sessions, and a special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy. Inspired as a production of Interfaith Voices, we rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. I'm your host and executive producer, Umreen Khan. Remember, friends, to stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. I'll see you next week.